The Australian company Sports Entertainment Network has been in the process of trying to set up its business on our shores for several months now. Its network, it's got a local network called SENZ and it's signed some big names. There's Brendan McCullum, the former Black Cat, veteran commentator Ian Smith, uh, the former News Hub reporter uh, Kirsty Stamway, uh, former All Blacks, Israel Dagg and Stephen Donald, and it hopes to fill that gap in the market left by Radio Sport. Another person employed by the station, at least until recently, was the producer Sam Casey. Why only until recently? Well, Sam Casey wrote an article for Rugby News last week uh, titled Hands Up, Not Out. It argued a few different things. It argued that women's rugby was receiving basically too much support and funding from New Zealand rugby. It said the game was being held to ransom and that, logically speaking, there was no rhyme or reason why the Black Ferns and the Black Ferns Sevens girls get paid the amount they do. I'm quoting him when I say girls. Uh, That's the language it used. The article took particular issue with Alice Soper, who often advocates in support of more funding and exposure for women's rugby. He basically said she was detached from reality. He criticised women for speaking up. And so how did How well was that received? It wasn't, uh, Susanna, it wasn't 100% positive. So Alice Soper posted the column on her Twitter account saying it was a 90s-style throwback. Uh, the prominent sports commentator Scotty Stevenson, according to the spin-off, screamed at the ceiling for several hours and then wrote a column which called the... Uh, well, which called Sam Casey's column a rambling shambolic manifesto straight from the Middle Ages. Uh, in, in, in all amongst this, Rugby News itself put out a statement uh, saying it was a, it apologised for any, what it said, unforeseen hurt felt by its audience. Now, I, I feel like if that was unforeseen to you, then perhaps your powers of foreseeing need to improve a little bit when you do print a column that sort of criticises women for what I think it was uh, jumping up and down, kicking and screaming, asking for like any pay at all, just about, I think that maybe you should be able to foresee a little bit of hurt. I mean, me, people were mainly positive about this apology and it's credit to them that they made it. But uh, yes, I think maybe they could have spotted some potential issues with this column beforehand. And how about Sam Casey's bosses? They didn't respond positively to the column either, so it was revealed yesterday that he had been dismissed from his job at SENZ in a statement. Uh, it said that the column conflicted with the organisation's values of equality, respect and inclusiveness among all sports and athletes, and that the tone of the piece was highly disrespectful to New Zealand's female sports athletes. Sam Casey himself actually did speak to media about this, uh, and he said that he was surprised he was fired over the column, even though he did obviously expect it to ruffle some feathers. He said something sort of surprising to stuff. He said that he'd knocked it out in 20 minutes before deadline while he was sitting on the inter-island of Ferry. I mean, (laughs) probably not a huge surprise that it wasn't the world's best column. Those conditions aren't particularly conducive to the most enlightening opinion writing. The question is why it got published anyway, and I've kind of got to digress a little bit here, but I mean, I guess it highlights that some media organisations 
while they're pretty good at editing, their news sections aren't always devoting the same amount of attention to their opinion sections. So I think of another widely reported incident recently where uh, in a column on June 13, Matthew Houdin said New Zealand would run out of vaccines uh, the following week. I mean, that didn't actually turn out to be the case. It turned out he hadn't properly uh, factored in the fact that the country was getting continued vaccine deliveries. So there's, this isn't, this is just an example. There's, I think from, from my perspective, when I was working as a homepage editor, I think that you did often just employ a little bit less scrutiny to the opinion pieces because they're not held to quite as high a standard uh, by the likes of, you know, the, the media council and the BSA. And maybe part of that is also down to resourcing. These stories don't quite have those rigorous standards and they can be seen as a way to fill a content hole. New Zealand's are already pretty overstretched just editing the journalism that comes in. You can think, oh, well, we'll just chuck up the opinion. Don't need to check it as much. I'm taking issue more and more with that. I think opinions need an editor just as much as journalism does. So how have people responded to the decision to fire Casey over the column? So... Uh, I thought one really good response was actually from the person targeted by the column, Alice Soper, and she talked to News Talk ZB's Heather Duplessis-Allen, and she didn't really see Casey as the enemy and didn't say that she wanted him to be fired, but saw more of a symptom of a wider cultural problem. So here's what she had to say. There are parts of me that I feel sorry for him because this is not a unique a, a unique idea. This is an idea I continue to come into contact with. Man, if I had a dollar for every time a man down at the rugby club wanted to tell me that he didn't think women's rugby was worth it, I'd be, uh, well, finally paid uh, to be participating in this sport. So, look, it's not uniquely his, and I do feel sorry for him that he's been the fall guy for basically a bunch of um, old ideas. But they are just that. They're old, they're tired, and if you're going to die on that hell, well, I guess that's what happens if you mm. continue to, to go along against the current of change you will be left behind uh, if you don't catch up i love that response from alice soper and she was pretty articulate in all of her responses she also spoke on the panel uh, <laughs> i i thought it probably spoke to uh, sam casey's poor decision making and who he makes his enemy actually seeing that seeing how uh, articulately, Alice Soper really was making her case. But anyway, like uh, she said, his views aren't unique and there has been some predictable predictable backlash from the rugby community. Uh, the decision to fire Casey over a take that he wrote for another publication has actually also raised some eyebrows at, uh, in amongst the media. I did speak to one media employer who said to me, kind of jokingly, you know, if they uh, could fire their employees for every bad take that they made, then they'd be happily sitting in an office by themselves. But, uh, I mean, ultimately, though, this is more than just your your everyday bad take. Uh, it was incredibly uh, offensive. Uh, and ultimately, firing Casey is in line with some of the principles that SENZ has set out ahead of its launch. And one of its broadcasters, Gerard Waitley talk to the beloved, universally beloved uh, show Media Watch in late May, and he had this to say. If you limit your conversation and pitch only to that blokey idea of what sport has been in the past, then you are frankly living in the past. I would feel absolutely confident knowing the people who are going to be on air, that's not what you would hear. And it should be broader because I don't think sport is a distraction to real life. 
But in the moments where real life can become absolutely overwhelming, sports are sanctuary. So you should be able to find programs that speak to you regardless of gender and age because when the all-bat blacks play, they don't just lock the gates and say only 25 to 35-year-old males are allowed to be interested in this. It is a national obsession and the sports conversation, I think, should reflect that. SENZ is promising to be different and at least in this early case it seems to be walking that talk. Now it could probably do with actually employing a few more women. After all, Casey's role isn't the only one opening up. So who else is left? Uh, We've got Jason Pine. He's a former Radio Sport employee who had signed on as the station's content director and then as one of its hosts. He's also left recently. He hasn't commented on the reason why, but he did put out a tweet today saying there was nothing sinister at play and he wished the station nothing but the best. It's definitely been a bumpy start, though, for a station that's made some big-name hires and wants to make a splash arriving on the market. Indeed. So on the topic of offensive speech, we move on to hate speech legislation. Yeah, if you're like me, you've probably come away from all of the recent debate and commentary around this legislation almost feeling a bit more confused than when you went in. It's just a lot of really incendiary takes on both sides of the discussion that seem to be generating a lot more heat than light. So I tried, or and I tried, got together with Colin Peacock, and we put our heads together, and we tried to find some explainers that actually uh, added some light to the discussion. Okay, so who do you think actually did add light to the debate then? Uh, well, the first is Mark Delder of Newsroom. He had a piece headlined, The Chilling Effect of Hate Speech. And he pointed out, uh, it's not a point that has been made everywhere, but that the proposed changes would actually narrow what constitutes prosecutable hate speech under the current Human Rights Act. So at the moment, you can prosecute speech that's likely to excite hostility, ill will, or bring into contempt or ridicule a group of persons in New Zealand on the ground of their colour or race or ethnic or national origins. And the suggestion is actually to set that bar higher at just... Set that bar higher than just exciting hostility at intentionally inciting, stirring up, maintaining or normalising hatred. So that was a point that was echoed by Graham Edgler on Public Address's Legal Beagle blog and he he made it under the provocative title The Government's Proposal to Decriminalise Racist Hate Speech. So he was pointing out there that actually some of the stuff that was prosecutable before, that was criminal before, would actually be decriminalised. The, the, the bar for criminalising hate speech is actually set higher. But the proposal to make... Well, it isn't a proposal to make hate speech laws... It's a discussion less, document. Right, yeah. and make them less tough, though, is it? No, it's, and it's not. So that can make it seem like I'm saying it's just that it's actually watering down these laws. Actually, no. So the bar for what is... This is what Delder and Edge... I'm not a lawyer, but this is what they are saying, and uh, I, I actually helped me, but they're saying, you know, the bar is set high for what constitutes hate speech, but that law protects more groups. So you wouldn't be able to stir up hatred against, for instance, someone on the basis of their religion or sexual orientation or gender expression, this kind of thing. So uh, it's not just race, colour, ethnicity anymore. It's these different groups. And the offence would also be moved up into the Crimes Act. Uh, So the penalties for breaching it would be more serious. So Mark Delder, he summed it up saying, taken together, the proposals mean people are protected against hate speech and the penalties for hate speech are higher, but the definition of hate speech is tied in. So in other words, uh, protect more people, but you have to behave worse 
to be in breach of it. And you also liked what Dita Diboni wrote on this topic in the NBR. Yeah, I thought she did a good do- a good job of saying that some of that stuff I just explained, that explaining all of that, but also by putting it in context. So she compared the panic over the legislation to the outcry over the 2007 anti-smacking bill. So you'll remember at the time huge numbers of people queued up to say that legislation would see large swathes of society criminalised for employing any form of physical discipline against their children. And of course that didn't happen. Only one person was prosecuted under the bill in the first 16 months after it was passed. And that case ended with the person being discharged without conviction. So, uh, Despite that, it seems like the bill might have worked in some way. According to a University of Otago study, the number of parents smacking their children did halve between 2002 and 2017. So does Dita think that a similar thing could happen with hate speech? Well, well maybe she thinks that maybe this would have a, 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 a depressing effect or <laughs> yeah, suppressing effect on hate speech that without necessarily a huge number of prosecutions happening. But I think her main point is that the outcry over the legislation has the same heightened feel to it, uh, has all the signs of being similarly overblown. So, interestingly, she wasn't the only columnist to bring up the anti-smacking bill uh, in a column published by The Herald. Graham Adams said the reaction to the 2007 bill should have sounded a warning to Labour. But unlike uh, Deboney, she, uh, he, sorry, uh, didn't go on to note that that anti-smacking bill ended up passing near unanimously and has caused none of the chilling effects its opponents predicted. But these columns, their arguments aren't suggesting, though, that the government's efforts with this policy have been perfect, right? Absolutely not. So uh, they're all pretty much united as well around the fact that the government's messaging has been confusing and muddled and it's unclear exactly how stringently these new provisions will be applied and it should... People like Chris Farfoy and Jacinda Ardern should be able to answer hypotheticals like, will millennials be prosecuted for hating on boomers with God, I hope, no, from my perspective. Uh, So these are genuine concerns. Uh, The government has made its case pretty poorly, but the apocalyptic predictions of some opponents aren't all that helpful either. And they kind of make a collective call to tone down some of this incendiary rhetoric that's been floating around. I mean, after all, these changes were mooted by the Royal Commission into the March 15 terror attack. And that's, that's too serious for this just to be a silly political football that people are flinging back and forth. As Mark Delder wrote, both the government and the opposition could benefit from taking more care and saying what they really mean so the rest of us aren't left to read between the lines. We're owed an honest debate about the proposals on offer here, given the seriousness of the issue. And I think that's something we can all agree on. Totally. Now, we've just got a few more seconds. Can we very, very quickly touch on a gap in the coverage of the hospitality industry staff issues? Yeah. We've literally got less than a minute, but it's uh, worth giving that to you, Hayden. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry I didn't get to it. There's a campaign, the Lights Off campaign for these restaurants called The Reset. And all of their bosses saying that basically they're running out of temporary migrants to staff their restaurants. I just wanted to highlight a gap in the coverage here because it's been a lot of bosses being interviewed it's been a lot of people in charge of these restaurants but actually some of the people that haven't been interviewed as much have been the workers in these restaurants and I wanted to highlight a column by the, st- the spin-offs Charlotte Mudu Lanning and she's saying look this is a quick fix when what the hospitality industry actually needs is to how to solve longer term intractable issues which stop it being seen as a sustainable and enticing career option she's a former hospitality worker she knows so people like her are kind of a little bit missing in action in the coverage of this Uh, You know, we're talking about 
just getting in temporary migrants to fix this, but she's calling on the industry to address these deeper issues before kicking up a fuss for a short-term fix. I get it as a journalist, you know. Sometimes these campaigns come along and you're served it up on a plate and there's press releases and there's an organised campaign the restaurant associations behind it and you've got spokespeople. But sometimes other voices do get lost in this coverage, whether it's this issue or whether it's something like housing where renters and first-time buyers sometimes get lost. Sometimes you have to dig a little deeper for the voices that are missing and Maybe that means just talking to some, someone at your local coffee shop. There's, there's plenty of hospitality or workers around who might be willing to talk on these issues.